Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. This is your podcast of music discovery. We are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, your premier source of music discovery. We are coming to the end of our third season of this year's podcast, and we are humbled and grateful that you are still tuning in more than ever before from countries all around the world. That's amazing. Just recently moved into a new studio, Mm -hmm. so if the sound is a little different than normal, that may be why, but I'm sure it still sounds spectacular due to the diligent work of our too often underappreciated engineer and producer, producer Randy. Indeed. Round of applause for Randy, everybody. I'm going to try to clap very quietly in the mic so that Randy doesn't get mad at me. He does all the magic. At the end of the day, all Kyle and I do is uh, write some notes and then bullshit for an hour, hour and a half. Yeah, pretty much. And then the real work begins for Randy. So if I don't say it often enough, thank you, Randy, for all yes, of your hard you, work. We appreciate it. Now, Randy doesn't just do the engineering for our show. He also produces our judo chops. Yes, he does. Small episodes that you can only get if you subscribe to our Patreon. Yeah. Kyle. What is that all about? Yeah, so the Patreon is all about supporting the podcast. If you really like listening to us, uh, we do this for fun, obviously, but we do uh, a little bit of support helps us out and goes quite a long ways. So we just added a brand new tier, Matthew. Really? Uh, in honor of today's episode, I called it the Shout It Out Loud tier. Of course you did. It's only a buck a month, though. <laughs> so, uh, And literally for a buck a month, not only do you help out the podcast, but in return, we will give you a shout out on every episode as long as you continue to pay the dollar a month. That sounds Um, good. One thing I should mention right now, uh, we are recording these in groups. We usually get together and record two or sometimes three episodes at a time. Mm -hmm. Because of that, if you sign up right now, it will take us a little while to start putting your name at the end of these episodes. But it will get there eventually, I promise. That's a good caveat. And then it will also take us a little time if you decide to stop. It takes a little time for it to wear off. So you might hear your name a few more times before it goes (laughs) away. So don't think you're cheating the system by like, ah, I got some freebies. I promise we're going to catch it. However, that's our lowest tier. It's $1 a month called Shout It Out Loud. If you want to support us a little bit more than that, you can sign up for the front row seats tier for just five bucks a month. You can really help us keep making the podcast and maybe splash with a couple beers along the way. Uh, For your money, you'll get a shout out out by name at the end of every episode. 
two-day early access to all of our full episodes, access to those bony, bonus mini-episodes called Judo Chop. Bony. <laughs> bony. <the> bony mini-episodes. <laughs> the bonus mini-episodes called Judo Chops, uh, which come out in the weeks in between normal episodes, and occasional bonus bits and uh, content such as unedited interviews, behind-the-scenes videos, and tiny tidbits that got cut out of episodes mostly due to flatulence. If you really want to help us out and get a little something in return, you can sign up for the Backstage Past here. It's $20 a month. So for only one Jackson a month, that is Andrew, not Michael, you'll get a shout out my name at the end of every episode, two-day early <laughs> access to full episodes, access to the Judo Chop mini episodes, the bonus bits of farts and burps, plus a very special personalized gift after three months at that tier, and the big one, a chance to co-host an audio Judo episode on the album of your choice. This benefit activates after one year of patronage at this tier and can only be activated once. Also, oh, there's more. I found a little secret. Ooh, what? It's a Patreon there's secret more? that I'm not sure we're supposed to know about. Oh, boy. If you want to help us out, but you aren't interested in signing up for a monthly subscription, there is a way to make a custom one time pledge on Patreon. I'll uh, take a thousand bucks. Right? Yeah. A thousand. Uh, anybody out there who's a millionaire and needs to get rid of money quickly, right? Where your cup, where your, where might be laundering, but it's okay. Yeah, whatever. If you go to our page, patreon.com forward slash audio judo, and scroll down just a bit, you'll see a title bar with a logo and a big green button that says become a patron. That'll drop down from the top of your browser. Click that button and you'll come to a page that shows all of our Patreon tiers. But if you scroll to the bottom of the page, there's a button that says make a custom pledge. If you click on that button, it will give you an option to make up any pledge you want, starting at $1 and going all the way up to $2,643,117. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's the maximum you can donate. I'm sorry. Uh, it'll be set up to renew automatically, but to make a one-time only pledge, you can sign up, make the payment, and then immediately cancel your subscription. In exchange for that, we'll give you a special shout out in the next episode record after your pledge. So, you know, a little tip for tat. One other thing to mention, we do record, oh, I already mentioned this. We do record several episodes at a time, so the shout outs will probably be a little bit delayed from the time you sign up. True story. And uh, they'll probably be a little bit delayed if you ever cancel. So that's it, though. It does help us out a ton. Uh, it does pay for our beers and equipment. Did you and know this was gluten-free? I did know these are gluten-free. That's delicious. Yeah. So, Matthew. <laughs> yeah. What are we talking about today? So, for this week's episode, as Kyle alluded to, if you didn't pick up on it, I'll fill it in here in a second. I decided to talk about a band that I have, I personally, have maligned and derided for many Many years. <laughs> I've never liked this band's music, but it is impossible to deny the influence that they have had on the fabric of rock and roll since they released their first album in 1974. They have played thousands of shows, sold millions of copies of their records, slept with hundreds upon hundreds of groupies, and collected <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars in profits over the last 50 years. So they deserve to be talked about. And we are talking about KISS and their 1976 album, Destroyer. Oh, boy. The classic hard rock album has many hits, and it is an, an essential party album from that era. I would definitely agree with all of that. It's cemented its legacy by some of the songs that get constant play on rock radio and is a necessary album for someone trying to get an understanding from that era, regardless of what I think about their playing. Uh, but before we talk about Destroyer, we should talk about the machine and marketing behemoth that, that produced Kiss. the record, and that is Kiss. So what do you know about Kiss, Matthew? The band gets its roots back in New York City in 1971 when friends Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, a.k.a. Stanley Eisen and Chaim Witz. Chaim. That's right. The Starman and the Demon are actually named Stanley and Chaim, 
two good Jewish boys. <laughs> they put together a band called Wicked Lester. And that band recorded an album, actually, after signing with Epic Records. But they shelved it, and then they abandoned the band. The pair saw an ad in Rolling Stone that a New York City drummer named Peter Chris, a.k.a. George Criscula, uh, was looking for a band. And he had previously been in bands called Lips and Chelsea. Not Lips and Chelsea, but Lips. And then a different band. And then a different band called, called Chelsea. Chelsea. So they went to a club to check him out. And they heard him sing while playing drums and felt that that would be a good addition. What's funny to me is they yeah. still had him audition, even after yeah. seeing him play live. Hey, you auditioned. <laughs> that seems just like a Gene Simmons thing to do. Like, no, you still have to audition. I'm sorry. You got to. I know we saw you play in the clip. No, you still have to come and audition. Thousand percent. Right? <laughs> Thousand percent. That's Gene all the way. Right. In early 73, after holding a series of auditions for other guitarists, they added Ace Freely, a.k.a. Paul Freely. That's not that big of a stretch, which solidified the original and classic lineup of the band. Indeed. Around this time, they started experimenting with their image and stage personas, including makeup, yet they had not played a gig as of yet. Right. So you can just play with makeup. Supposedly, it was around the same time that Paul Stanley came up with the name. Oh, yeah. Uh, he and Gene Simmons and Peter Chris were driving around in New York. Chris mentioned that he had been in a band called Lips. So Stanley said, what about Kiss? Supposedly. What about Kiss? I, I have mean, that too. What about Kiss? What about Kiss? And then Freely created the now iconic logo yeah. of the band with the lightning bolt SSs. Unfortunately, the SSs in the logo yeah. look a lot like the SSs from the Nazi SS uniforms. And when they marketed in certain countries in Europe, their logo is changed slightly to different shaped S's. Now, this is not in my notes, but I just thought about this. Mm -hmm. We're giving you a cursory overview of the band Kiss. We're not digging too oh, deep yeah. on Kiss. If you want something very specific, there is a podcast called the Shout It Out Loud podcast oh, yes. on Pantheon that is a fantastic podcast by some of our, uh, you know, our colleagues. And if you are looking for an absolute deep dive, because they they, they go eat deep. They eat, drink, and breathe kiss, which uh, more power to them that they can do that because that's just not me. But if you're looking for kiss stuff, that's the place to go. So we're just going to give you an overview so we can well, get to Destroyer. You know, the, you know the rule of kiss fans, right? What's that? You're either not a kiss fan or you're an insane kiss fan. <laughs> that's all there is to it. You are either right. a huge kiss fan or you're not a kiss it's fan. Not a that's, that's how it goes, unfortunately. So one of the things you just mentioned uh, before that uh, yeah. aside was that uh, uh, the SS in Kiss sure. has been unfavorably compared to the SS from the Waffen SS, uh, you know, the World War II uh, mm -hmm. Nazis. Gene and Paul, who are both Jewish, have both denied that uh, intentional likeness and said that it was just a cool-looking S that they kind of drew. Uh, the band's name has repeatedly been the subject of rumors pertaining to alleged hidden meanings, among them that KISS is an acronym for Knights in Satan's Service. That's always my favorite one. Kinder SS, or Kids in Satan's Service. Uh, Gene Simmons has denied all of those well, claims The Knights in well. Satan's Service is just as ridiculous as it sounds. Right. Like, give me a break. <clears throat> yeah, and like you said, Gene and Paul, both Jewish. Uh, Gene lived for his first two years of his life in Israel, and he's the son of Holocaust survivors. So um, the chances of them adopting that into their logo, right. slim and none. Yeah. The very first gig of their career was on uh, January 30th, 1973, at the Popcorn Club in Queens to an audience of fewer than 10. For some reason, though, <laughs> they must have got almost 100% of the house because they were paid $50 for yeah, two sets. Right? So you think about that. If there's 10 people in the house, they played two sets. <laughs> 10 people, they got 50 bucks. 
every one of those people had to pay five bucks. And then the house got nothing. And the house got nothing. So they had to take 100% and, of and the And this was, this was what, 1973? 1973, yes. So five bucks from every person? That's insane. <laughs> Bullshit. No. Uh, so they did, they did, however, perform there for three consecutive nights. And it was later uh, renamed the Coventry Club. So when you hear the Coventry right. – I'm sorry, just the Coventry. Uh, so when you later hear that, that's what it was called. But uh, according to Paul, Slan- Paul Stanley, quote – our first show ever was at Coventry. Coventry was a study in contrast. The first time we played, there was almost nobody there. The last time we played, there you could barely get in the door. So three nights in a row, yep. and they went from 10 people on the first night to barely being able to get in the door. It's pretty good. That's pretty good. And they wore makeup, but not their iconic makeup yet. Yeah. Those faces wouldn't debut for a couple months. Uh, later that year, they recorded a five-song demo with producer Eddie Kramer, and Bill Aukoin saw them perform and offered to be their manager. And they agreed... On the condition that, and this is classic Gene Simmons. Oh, my God. And why they were so successful at marketing. He agreed on the condition that he have them signed to a label within two weeks <laughs> or or Bill Aukoin was fired. Yeah, which is bonkers. Like, you got two weeks. So on November 1st, 1973, less than two weeks after meeting, Kiss became the first act signed to Casablanca Records. Which was uh, Neil Boggart's uh, uh, brand new record label. Yeah, Neil I mean, Boggart. he had literally just started it. So. so they entered the studio in October 73 to begin their first album. And the band would have their industry premiere on New Year's Eve at the Academy of Music in New York City, opening for Blue Oyster Cult, which is very interesting. Yeah. This would be the first of several times that Gene would light his hair on fire during his fire-breathing <laughs> act. Because it happened all the fucking time. <laughs> well, I mean, you got to think. The amount of hairspray that had to be in there, right. it was a fire trap. And how many happen. concerts did they do? Oh, yeah. It's going to happen. They started their f- first tour in February of 74 in Edmonton as an opening act with their self-titled debut record slated for release on February 18th of that year. That album would sell 75,000 copies without a hit single due to relentless touring and promotion and would eventually go gold in the States as most of their records would mm. do over time. Uh, the only song I really know from this release is Strutter. Yeah. Uh, which I used to hear on the radio as a young chap. It was not the album's first single, however. That was left to nothing to lose because, of course, it was. That first single was written by Gene, and it was about convincing his lady to have anal sex, which she didn't want to do. But by the end of the song, it seems to be her very favorite thing to do. And this is just classic. Which, mm, I'm sure yes. it's 100% truthful. Ah, uh, Yeah. And because this is Kiss, they performed that song on their very first national television appearance <laughs> on a concert on ABC. Cold Gin from this record is also a fan favorite, but I didn't know that song either when I heard it, like I, a lot I'm, of these. I'm familiar with Cold Gin out of – Strutter and Cold Gin are, are the two songs that okay. I think that I'm most familiar with on this album. Oh, on, on, the, the, first first album. on the first album. Yeah, on, that, al- that debut Kiss. album yeah. uh, would reach number 87. And the band and Casablanca Records were quickly uh, going broke. Mm-hmm. So after that, they went to L.A. to record their second album, uh, which would become Hotter Than Hell. Uh, and it was Hell. released in August 1974. Eight months I'm sorry, after they, they were, de- debut. Me, they recorded in August 1974. It was released October 1974. Eight months after they their debut yeah. album. Things are different. Yeah. It's so different. <laughs> Uh, the single Let Me Go Rock and Roll failed to chart, and the album got stuck at number 100 on the charts, which means that it was halfway down the chart when it premiered. <laughs> so, we, you know, if they look at the top 200 albums and you're number 100, you're already halfway to the bottom. But the album would go gold in 77. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder and why. 
they were struggling. So, and the record company, which had lost its distribution deal with Warner Brothers at t- that time, was losing money hand over fist. So they pulled the band from their tour to record a new album. So this will be three in less than a year. Yeah. Released in March of 75, Dressed to Kill was their third studio album released in 13 months. At the time of its release, it would only do marginally better than Hotter Than Hell, but it contained their signature song, Rock and Roll All Night. Mm-hmm. The album did not sell well at the time. Eventually went gold and would get to 32 on the charts. Surprised in 1977, the same year as the other two albums. I wonder what happened. <laughs> a reflection of the band's growing popularity as they were continuing to make a name for themselves the old-fashioned way. With the live show. Yeah. Simmons' blood spitting and breathing fire. Freely's guitar that burst into flames. Peter Chris's elevated drum riser that admitted sparks. And Stanley's guitar smashing, plus pyro and all kinds of lighting effects drew people in. And people were talking. Yeah. So what do you do if you have a if your live performances are better than your albums, Matthew? And you're not making any money, right? You release a live album. What a great idea! <laughs> a live exclamation mark. Ooh, that's uh, how you fill the coffers right yeah. there. It was recorded at concerts between May and July in Wildwood, New Jersey, Detroit, Michigan, and Cleveland, Ohio, in 1975. Ooh, the D, right? Uh, released on September 10th, 1975, Alive went gold and sent the live version of Rock and Roll All Night into the top 40 on the charts. It actually stayed on the charts for 110 weeks, <laughs> which is a pretty damn good run for anybody. Album reached number nine on the Billboard charts, listed as number 305 on Rolling Stone's list of top 500 albums mm-hmm. of all time. And it started to turn the band into a phenomenon. Yeah, it did exactly what the title implied. It kept both Kiss and, and Casablanca Records alive. Right before the tour to support the record began, Kiss was prepared to leave Casablanca Records and inform them of such just five days after the, the release of Kiss Alive. Neil Bogart, head of Casablanca Records, responded by cutting the band a $2 million check to retain them. <laughs> don't cash it until Tuesday. <laughs> sure, don't cut it. And if you've ever listened to Alive, you know... That it's totally sweetened. Oh, yeah. There are numerous overdubs. The crowd noise is enhanced. But then you have to to ask yourself, so fucking what? Yeah. Does it have to be a duplicate copy of a live performance, or is it still a record and fall under the same constructs as a regular record? Here's always been my thing with live albums. Every one of them is doctored in some way. Some way. I'm sorry. There's even if it's like, oh, you know, it was recorded. It was recorded off the board. It's only know? the bootlegs it, that it was, are like that. Exactly. And the bootlegs sound like shit. No offense to bootleggers. Some offense to bootleggers. Bootleggers. Bootlickers. <laughs> well, fuck bootlickers. <laughs> but no offense to bootleggers. Right. To me, I'm with you. To me, the big difference is this. A a real live recording where you haven't done any editing or anything to it is a historical record. Mm -hmm. You can go back and look at that and say, what songs did they play? What order were they in? How did it sound if you were a member of the crowd with a bad tape recorder? (laughs) (laughs) A live album should be... What is the best possible version of this? I agree. And we have an episode coming up where we're going to talk about this a little bit. Uh, Dave Matthews' band, oh, yeah, Remember yeah. Two Things, Remember two which things. will be out, uh, I think, a month, month and a half after this episode. Something like that. Ish. But we're going to talk about that a little bit more in depth because it really is a, a thing. Should a live album be a record of what happened at that specific concert or concerts? Or should it be something that is engineered and sounds good and gives you a taste of the best that the live album No, I think the live recordings 
like if somebody does it, like bootlegs it or whatever, let's see trade those like the Grateful Dead people do. Yeah. They trade it amongst themselves. Hey, were you at the show in Boise? No, I wasn't. Well, I got a tape of it here. Listen to it. And that that's fine. But I'd say take it, sweeten it, make it sound better, make it sound the way you want it to. I it always agree. sounds better being in the room than it will anyway, because you're there. It always sounds better. There were a couple of uh, Rush shows that were recorded live that I was at, and then I listened back. I'm like, that sounded so much better that night because <laughs> I was there. I was in the room. There's a whole experience involved in yeah. it. So make it sound awesome. And in a weird one for me, Kyle, the RIAA only lists Alive as selling a half million copies, but it has yeah. sold over 9 million worldwide. That's a weird – I noticed that too. So why the discrepancy? Weird, my assumption would be that there was some kind of a – like it was repressed – multiple times mm. and there Does was something count? changed something yeah i don't know i couldn't find any information on it but i'm sure mm. there's some kind of a weird like oh well it was changed between the first and second pressing so that doesn't count and you know the re-release doesn't count towards the numbers and whatever <laughs> they have all kinds of weird stupid shit like the thing we've talked about before where a double album counts as two albums sold for every single Correct. So if you so if you have a double album, every time you sell one double album, that counts two. as two albums. Yeah. So suddenly a million selling album is actually a two million selling album, which I think is bullshit. It is bullshit. But the success of Alive, like you said, saved the label, yeah. brought the band the breakthrough they had been searching for. So why not hire the other shock band's producer to do your next record? Yeah. So they did. They hired Bob Ezrin, who had worked with Alice Cooper, and they set out to make a record uh, we're going to talk about today, 1976's. Destroyer. Destroyer was released on March 15th, 1976, and was a departure for the band in sound quality from the previous release. Uh, no doubt that it was heavily influenced by the addition of Bob Ezrin. Oh, yeah. Who brought in additional musicians, challenged the band to focus on the musicality of their songs and not just crank out another album so they could go back to doing what they did best, which was touring. Yeah. Well, they came to Ezrin with some demos and existing material, and he basically rejected all of it. Uh, he The only things that made it onto the album were heavily reworked versions of God of Thunder and Detroit Rock City. Those demos did influence future lyrics and riffs on this album and other albums, though, but only pieces of it. He was basically just like, oh, your demos suck. We're going to start from scratch. Uh, the first recording session took place at Electric Lady Studios in New York City between September 3rd and 6th, 1975, where they laid down the basics for most of the tracks and then went back out on tour for a little while. Uh, the majority of the recording took place after that a live tour uh, in January 1976. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like you said, it was an immediate step up in production value. Right. They utilized an orchestra, a choir, numerous tape effects. Numerous they had- Other musicians. Yeah. Yeah, they which had, we're going to talk about. Yeah. They had real recording prowess now. And it did fairly well yeah. at first. It peaked at number 11 on the US Billboard charts, even got to number one in Canada, mm -hmm. the first time that it happened for them. But it didn't last long. By the summer of 76, it had fallen down to number 192 and quickly disappearing. But then they released Beth, mm -hmm. a true power ballad. And that song would end up charting pretty high, as we will talk about, and gave the album a resurgence to last until the fall. Mm -hmm. Before we talk about the album artwork, though, uh, let's take a second to discuss our familiarity with Kiss. Oh, So I would imagine for you, Kyle, you probably hadn't you'd known about them first without their stage makeup, probably. No, actually. Oh. So I was very familiar with Kiss as their 
their makeup personas. Oh, because their makeup disappeared in the early For 80s. quite a long time. And would not return until the mid-90s, so yeah. you were just growing up with Kiss unmasked. Yeah. My thing was, I knew of Kiss more as a concept of like, oh, those are those guys that wear that black and white makeup and, and dress up with like, you know, Frankenstein boots and gaudy leather costumes and perform on stage. And I knew their hits. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? I did not know there's... I honestly don't think there's ever been a time until doing this that I sat down and listened to a Kiss album <laughs> from beginning to end. And, you know, maybe to my credit, maybe to my detriment, who knows. But I don't think there was ever a time where I wasn't just like, oh, let's listen to the hits. Let's listen to, uh, you know, like Greatest Kiss or, you know, the um, whatever their greatest other greatest hits albums are. Or just track, you know, pick out specific tracks. You uh-huh. know, Detroit Rock City, uh, Rock and Roll All Night, you know, all the hits. And they were, they still had, even though they were, you know, when I was maturing and becoming a teenager, they were unmasked and they weren't performing with the makeup. Right. That iconic imagery from the late seventies and early eighties was what I knew about the band. Okay. And the unmasked stuff was just like, yeah, I don't recognize any of that stuff at all. You didn't get down to lick it up. Lick it up. Lick it up. I mean, it's a, not a bad song, but <laughs> the other place that I know them from is I never watched it, but I remember seeing it on was Gene Simmons' um, reality TV show. Family Jewels? Family Jewels. That's it. Thank you for reminding me of the name, (laughs) which I remember seeing like bits and pieces of it and being like, why is the guy from Kiss? Who cares? Who cares what this guy is doing? But apparently a lot of people did. So yeah. Yeah. I was a kid during their heyday. And to me, they were not even a rock band. They were comedians. They were comic strip characters. They were Saturday morning cartoon people. And that's exactly how I approached their music. I heard a lot of their songs because they played certain selections on the album-oriented radio that I listened to. So I knew Detroit Rock City because growing up in Detroit, they played that a lot. I knew rock and roll all night. I knew Shout It Out Loud and all the classics and would occasionally hear Beth because my brother and sister liked that song and they were nine and 10 years older than me. But so ingrained in popular culture in 1977 and 78, when I was in kindergarten and first grade, was Kiss. That plenty of the kids that I went to Northwood Elementary School with had Kiss metal lunchboxes and thermoses. (laughs) For all of the evil incarnate that they were supposed to represent to us children, it didn't bother the parents enough to buy shit like that. Yeah, It's pretty telling because while parents were terrified about the horrible influence that artists like Ozzy and Judas Priest could have on children, even provoking suicides through their music, they certainly weren't afraid of Kiss, ignoring the spitting blood, the fire breathing, and the fact that one of them called themselves the demon all the time. Because we saw them as characters. I remember during recess, we used to run out to the stand of trees that was way out in the back behind the school and play kiss we pretended to be kiss <laughs> we pretended to be a rock band i would be the drummer naturally we would air perform a concert it made Wait. no logical sense but we were six it was laughable <laughs> and that's exactly what i grew up thinking about them as musicians laughable now i know there are a lot of podcasts out there about kiss namely shout it out loud podcast yeah. who will probably disown our friendship for me <clears throat> seeing you know saying such blasphemous things but you have to know that it's true At the the very best, they are remarkably average musicians. And at the very worst, they are bad enough to be replaced on their own records by other musicians and try to pass it off as themselves. Coming from the background I had musically with my brother and being exposed to such interesting stuff at an early age, 
I could not see why he bothered with Kiss at all. Being a huge fan of Rush, Rush's first album had been raw and more hard rock and bluesy and less conceptual. And I wrote off the fact that they had toured extensively with Kiss as they had something in common for a while. And that was with their first drummer. So they had changed quite a bit. Mm -hmm. It was just youth. No big deal. It would only be later that I realized the influence Kiss would have on Rush. Not musically, but it was significant. What Kiss lacked in musical ability, they made up for tenfold in marketability, promotion, and more than anything, value. Such a weird concept these days when people are shelling out $1,000 a ticket to see Sting perform his hits at the Coliseum in Las Vegas, which includes him pretty much just standing there playing bass. That's not value. What Kiss did, and still attempts to do at age 70, at every single show, is make sure people get a show. Yeah. They get value for their money. Spitting blood, sure. Fire breathing, of course. But pyro. Video, lasers, a light show to rival any touring show, raising platforms, party rock and roll. And while I don't love their songs, I can appreciate the commerce and the attention to detail (laughs) in a live setting. And that is the influence they had on my favorite band. They showed Rush when Rush was warming up for them in the mid-70s how to make people walk away from a show feeling like they got the show they deserved. Something to remember, something to come back and see again. Getty Lee talked about that extensively. Kiss treated their warm-up bands as equal partners, unlike bands like Aerosmith. They let them sound check. They let them use their lighting rig. They treated them with respect, and that went miles in a young band's, uh, young band's brain to try to emulate that when they reached stardom themselves. So while no, I don't really appreciate most of their music, I have mad respect for them as an entity in a business, and for all my mocking this album really isn't half bad if you take it for what it is. I like how your face scrunched up when you said that. And that's that's my soapbox for that one. <laughs> Want to talk about this album artwork? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Uh, the cover of this album is a painting of the four members of Kiss from left to right, Paul Stanley, Peter Chris, Ace Freely, and Gene Simmons. The group is stepping over a pile of rubble, and there are buildings destroyed and on fire in the background. The back cover shows a similar scene, but with more buildings on fire. Is it any wonder that they were on Saturday morning cartoons? Right. <laughs> it's such a freaking oh, comic. One of my favorite kind of joke things that happens regarding that. <laughs> Scooby-Doo. There's a, a, an episode of Family Guy from, I think, the third season. It's their Christmas episode where they end up watching Kiss Save Santa. <laughs> and it's like they got, they got Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, and I think Ace Freely to do actual voices for the cartoon. And it's so funny because it's you see little snippets of it throughout the whole episode, and it's like that could be real, that could be a real thing oh, that existed. Why with wouldn't no it problem? Be? They, it should exist, in my opinion. But kiss had like kiss the toilet paper. Yeah, kiss, kiss. You know, I have seen kiss the coffin. Yeah, I mean, spaceballs the musical. He put his spaceballs the lunch. Put that logo and trademark on every fucking thing <laughs> that he's like crusty. Yeah, just stamp everything that comes through him. Just like, yep, that's good enough. The inner sleeve of the record features a giant KISS logo with the lyrics to Detroit Rock City on one side and the phrase, shout it out loud on the other, uh, along with some info about how to join their fan club, the KISS Army. Mm-hmm. Which oh, is, yeah, the is Kiss a Army. whole other subject oh, that was a big that we deal. are not going to dive into because that's a deep hole to dive into. That was a huge deal back yeah. in the day when I was little. Uh, the cover was actually painted by fantasy artist Ken Kelly. 
Kelly was known for his extensive work designing album covers, magazine covers, comic books, and other painted works. Sword and sorcery stuff. A ton of sword and Big sorcery stuff. Big boob chicks and muscly dudes. Right. All which fits this music to a T. Which he actually got uh, he got into fantasy art as a teenager when he was able to study the work of his uncle, Frank Franzetta, who is another huge swords, sword and sorcery comic book designer. Frank Franzetta. Uh, yeah, a huge name in comic books, uh, if you don't know him. But- I don't. Uh, along with Kiss, he also painted covers for uh, Man of War, Sleepy Hollow, Rainbow, and some of Ace Frehley's solo Fuck work. Yeah, Rainbow. Wow. Right? This is actually the second version that Kelly produced, as his original was deemed too violent for the mass market, <clears throat> uh, likely due to the red tint and the difference in perspective, which makes Kiss seem to relish in the destruction at hand. Uh, However, yeah. that version was later used on the anniversary reissue titled Destroyer Resurrected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He also did the uh, cover for Love Gun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he just, uh, I don't know if you saw, uh, he actually just passed away a couple weeks before we're recording this. At, I did see that. At Very age 76. Sad. Yeah. yeah? That's, that's it, though. That's the, the cover. Should Wanna we take, take a quick break? and uh, uh, Do a track by track? Yeah, let's do it. All Detroit Rock City? Detroit Rock City. <laughs> Detroit Rock City. It was written by Paul Stanley and Bob Ezrin with uh, Stanley on lead vocals. That's yeah. important to point out. Yes, that is true. We, we do point it out. Almost every one, of these, uh, every one of these songs will have a different person on lead vocals. Now, if you bothered to familiarize yourself with the KISS catalog prior to this record, you will notice right away that it sounds different. Production mm-hmm. values have jumped up significantly due to Bob Ezrin's influence and his admonitions to take the album making more seriously. And to their credit, at least half of the band did just that. Gene and Paul were determined to make this band thing last and took the rock and roll boot camp lessons very seriously. Oh, yeah. As they do. Song opens with the sounds of the five o'clock news being reported with various headlines about President Ford. That dates it a little bit. Mm. And the voice of the announcer was Gene Simmons. Yeah. And then moves on to a story about a young man who was killed in a head-on collision in Detroit, Michigan. This is most likely a reference to a road called Grand Boulevard, mm-hmm. which actually runs east to west and is a heavily traveled artery through the heart of the city. And they did their research for that part of the song, at least. Uh, I mentioned that only <laughs> because Stanley sings later, moving fast down 95. I-95 doesn't run through Detroit. Right? I had that note too. I seventy five runs through Detroit. I ninety five goes through New York, though. Exactly, their hometown. Close, but no cigar. But not quite. So I'm going to put this out there. Sure. I think both the album version of this song and the single version of this song might be one of the best openers ever to a to a record to a rec- to an album. The album version I think is yeah. a great opener to an album. And the single version, I think, is a great opener to mm. just a song in general. It is a good song. It's so it's such a strong opening because uh, the album version, like you said, it starts with a newscast and it starts with some stuff, and a guy gets in a car and starts driving down the street, right? And listens to Me. some other Kiss music, and then it rolls into what would become the single version that right. So good. And this song differs so much from the other stuff. And that's yeah. one of the things. First of all, the subject matter, so much different. 
you'd be hard-pressed to find a song up until this point in their career that isn't ostensibly about sex or a breakup or something involving a member of the opposite sex. Yes. Tackling a ripped-from-the-headlines type song was new ground for them, and the addition of sound effects and the dueling double lead guitars by Stanley and Ace Frehley took this song to a whole other level, and it sounds like this. That's just great stuff. It is. It's such a good rock song. Not a Kiss fan, but still, that that's good stuff. This this song, not only maybe one of the most inspirational songs in rock history, inspired a whole movie called uh, Detroit Rock City. Detroit Rock City. Yeah. Uh, it was produced by Gene Simmons, released in 1999. It's set in 1978, so right after this album came out. The film was about a group of kids from Detroit trying desperately to attend a sold-out Kiss show in Detroit. Right. Did that movie speak to you, Matthew? No. Not at all. Not at all. Really? Because the main protagonist is a young, very religious person who raised in a very religious home who then became very a-religious due to rock and roll music. And that didn't speak to you at all. No. Oh, all right. Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> uh, it's actually, I think it's a pretty good movie. If I I'm, didn't if see I'm it all honest, with, If I'm honest with you, uh, I think that's probably because Gene Simmons didn't have a whole hell of a lot to do with it. He just put his name on it, but... It probably could relate to me if I saw the whole thing all the way through. So, there you anyway, go. so the riff from the song, though, based mm-hmm. on an earlier Kiss song called Acrobat, yes. that was only ever played live, never made it to a record. And the song is semi-true. It's about a fan who headed to a Kiss show, was killed in a car crash on the way to it. So he didn't even get to see the show. That's bummer. But it didn't happen in Detroit. Stanley believes it was in Charlotte, actually. Uh, and the Detro- Detroit part of the song is kind of a love letter to the city. While Stanley uh, is not from Detroit, he has always been a huge fan of the Motown sound. So much so that he has a band that is separate from Kiss called Paul Stanley's Soul Station mm-hmm. that performs and has released an album of Motown covers, which if you've listened to this record, it is phenomenally horrible. <laughs> it's nice setup. Thank you. So not good, but A plus for trying because he definitely puts the effort in, but it's A uh, for effort. D for I, I respect the dude. So hopefully KISS fans are hearing me out there. I do respect him. I just think the album is a big pile of shit. Sorry. I feel like this has become a trope, too. This is a song that ends with a car crash. <laughs> does it? Or does the other maybe. song begin with a car crash? Ooh, maybe. Is it a chicken and the egg thing? Because it goes into... Uh, oh, I had, well, I had some stuff there. Oh, Hold sorry. on. Go ahead. Uh, this was a third s- single release from the record. Didn't do well in the charts no. or on the radio outside of Detroit, that is. Because in Detroit, it was a huge hit because mm-hmm. we fall for that shit. <clears throat> and the B-side of the single was Beth. Yeah. And that song turned into a to be a much more popular song at <laughs> oh, the time. Yeah. And the song would be re-released as a B-side to Beth later in the year. You know, because why not? And uh, you talked about the movie. Blah, 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 blah. And the song ends with a car crash or begins King of the Nighttime World. Yes. 
This one written by Paul Stanley, Kim Fowley, Mark Anthony, and Bob Ezrin with Stanley on lead vocals. Mm -hmm. But this song sees the band returning to form with a song mm -hmm. about what else? Chicks. Yo, yeah. The song was written by Mark Anthony and Kim Fowler from their band, The Hollywood Stars. Kim Fowler, that's a piece of work. Jesus Christ. Fowley or Fowler? Fowler. Oh, I have it written down as Fowley. Oh, it's Fowler, as huh. far as I know. He is an alleged predator from years back. Oh, my. Uh, most people know him as the manager of the all-girl rock group, uh, The Runaways, hmm. with Lita Ford and Joan Jett. I know that at least one of them has claimed that he abused her during his stint as uh. manager. Which is right around the same time, so douche canoe. Oh, so he's a horrible human being, is what you're telling me. Uh, I may be saying that, yes. Ooh, gross. Is it Fowler or Fowley? Well, now I want to know. Well, look it up really quick. I was going to say the Hollywood Stars version of this did eventually get released on uh, Shine Like a Radio, the Great Lost 1974 album, which was released in 2013. Kim so, Fowler. Kim Fowler. Yeah. Okay, so I have it written down wrong twice. That's weird. Go me. <laughs> I'll continue. But uh, yeah, the Hollywood Stars version did eventually get released. What can I say about this song? I don't think that it's winning any lyric writing contests, but it's not a bad song. I think that it uh, uh, fits okay on this album, and it's it's uh, not a song I'm super familiar with. It's not but, horrible. Yeah. It's not great either. It's pretty standard kiss fare, simple melody, lame lyrics. It is what it is, and what it is sounds like this. That's about what you can say about it. So the lyrics I just played are just like, So the lyrics I wrote down, which uh -huh. I don't think are that bad. It's so sad. You're not content. Far from the music and the neon glow. Ain't you glad we got the time far from our folks? They'll never, ever know. No, those are bad. The lyrics are shit. <laughs> it's just so it's I'm sorry. Like I said, it's not winning any awards for lyric writing. Uh, but it, it, in my mind, this is not a bad song, not a bad second song on an album, uh, but not great. Not great either. No. Uh, God of Thunder. God of Thunder, written by Paul Stanley with Gene Simmons on lead vocals, kind of became Gene Simmons. Oh, here we go. Yeah. It's Gene's signature song. Yeah. Uh, the kids' voices throughout this song are provided by David and Joss Ezrin, uh, Bob Ezrin's sons. They also appear on the Lou Reed track, The Kids. Mm -hmm. So there you go. There you go. Bob Ezrin also decided this should be sung by Gene Simmons, even though it was written by Paul Stanley. And it sort of, be, like you said, it became sort of uh, Gene's signature song with its very methodical evil sound. And it was, uh, you know, originally the song was written, it was much more up-tempo and was designed for Paul to sing it. But Bob heard it and gave it to Gene. And this is the song where Simmons does the uh, fake blood spit. Yeah. It's bombastic. He's usually on some sort of articulating pedestal. You know? I was going to say, I, I thought you were going to say he's on some kind of a drug, but articulating pedestal is probably a better solution. No, he's a teetotaler. He doesn't drink or do I, drugs at all. He never has. Yeah, I know, but still. Gene Simmons. He's a hell of a guy. 
really. Like we mentioned before, he was born Heimwitz in Israel, and he is the god of thunder, the demon, and Dr. Love. He isn't a great bass player, lyricist, or singer, but he is a miraculous marketer and businessman. Oh, yeah. He's an author and actor, a pretty accomplished babe magnet, having bedded over 2,000 women in his day. Well, with according the, to him. With the Polaroid collection to prove it. Mm. And this is his shining song. Check it out. don't know whether i buy the idea that he's you know totally sober never did drugs no i know, I know he claims that yeah. and I, I know that you know supposedly I, I don't know man just the time that he lived through the era that he was the, the areas that he was in I, how I can you not have tried cocaine once in that time period i don't believe how can you not have tried cocaine once during that time period i'm sorry Maintaining control. Look at the look at the kind of control he has over this whole entity. Maintaining True. control is probably a big thing. And there's another, and I'm not going to say this about Gene Simmons because I think I think he's a hell of a businessman, not a great musician, whatever. I don't know what kind of person he is personally, but I know there's another asshat that's the same way. Ted Nugent <laughs> is the same way. Ted Nugent has never drank or done drugs. His vice is chicks. It always was okay. chicks, and. He like I believe that I believe that there are teetotalers out there that have okay. gone to extra lengths to make sure so no, they did not get involved in that scene. No drinking, no drugs, but he does fuck a ton of women. Is that is saying. correct? That is what I am saying. All right, everybody's got a vice, Kyle, and clearly that was his. All right, I mean, go ahead. Oh, I was saying, what's funny to me is this is Gene Simmons. You know, signature song. Yeah. But the standout part in it for me is Ace Frehley's amazing guitar solo. It's a great solo. It's right in the middle. It's one of the best uh, guitar solos in any Kiss album, in my opinion. It's a fantastic solo. I was going to put that, but I really wanted to get Gene Simmons singing on it. Right. And uh, supposedly uh, Ace Frehley thinks it's also one of his best. Um, From a Song Song Facts interview, he said, quote, Gene used to call it Dinosaur Bends. When I would bend the strings really heavy, the low strings. So, and it really does. It's this. It's a great solo, and and I encourage everybody to go give it a listen. Yeah. Quick. I mean, come on. He Gene's a terrible singer. Always has been. But this finished product is incredibly effective. And one thing I will completely reward the band for: they know who they are. Oh. Yeah. And they are not bashful about it. They don't try and hide it. Usually, <laughs> the songs are ridiculously simple, but the riffs are always fairly catchy. Even if the singing is grating, you know. That's kind of always the ironic thing about Kiss is they're this band that wears makeup so nobody knows what they actually look like. Yeah. They, you know, have this huge stage persona that they build up but then kind of hide behind. But they 100% know who they are. And there's never been any time where they're like, no, we're bigger than this. They're just Kiss. They know who they are. Yeah. Yeah. They 
I completely understand why this stuff was so popular to a certain mar- market demographic oh, yeah. in the 70s. You might also say they have great expectations. I might say that, <laughs> but that's the next song. <laughs> Got it. This has to be a song influenced by Bob Ezrin. I mean, oh yeah, it just has to be. Musically, it is completely weird for Kiss up to this point. Oh, yeah. It well, has a vocal choir in it, mm-hmm. the Brooklyn Boys Choir. It has a section in it that borrows pretty freely from Beethoven's Piano Sonata oh, Number 8 in C minor. It has acoustic guitar, not played by the band, but by session musician Dick Wagner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> named <laughs> Wagner. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's named after a movie that Gene liked by the same name, starring Sir Lawrence Olivier. Mm-hmm. Which uh, in turn was named after the- uh, The book. Uh, the book, Great Expectations. The only thing that keeps this from being a total outlier are the lyrics. Hey, everyone, let's get the young Brooklyn Boys Choir in here, shall we? I have the lyric sheet right here. Bring them on in. Just read along with me. You watch me singing this song. You see what my mouth can do. And you wish you were the one I was doing it to. That's right, kids. No, no. no, Don't be shy. Go ahead. Don't be shy. Belt it out. Next line. What's the next line? What are you, between 9 and 13 years old? Go ahead. Just sing that. You watch me beating my drum. And you know what my hands can do. Oh, boy. And you wish you were the one I was doing it to. Mm. Oh, boy. But don't take my word for it. Have a listen. You watch me beating my drum And you know what my hands could do And you wish you were the one I was doing it to What a good cutoff right there. What did you have? I was going to say, that is probably the New York Philharmonic Orchestra backing them, but it's not directly credited as the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. Probably. KISS did also do a version of this song later with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra that's pretty good. Um, Like we said before, uh, let's go back to Dick Wagner. Uh, He was a rock guitar legend. Wagner. Who worked with Alice Cooper, Lou Reed, and fronted his own Michigan-based bands, The Frost and The Boss Men. Yeah. Absolute uh, uh, rock guitar legend who kind of stayed in the shadows, though. Another one of those weird people that we come up all the time on the ep- on different episodes uh, on, on the podcast. Uh, people that kind of stay in the shadows, but end up across the board. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, the title from this song, like we said before, uh, was supposedly suggested by Gene Simmons, who probably got it from the 1946 film adaptation of the Charles Dickens novel of the same name. It's Dickens with two Ks, the well-known Dutch author. Dickens. Uh, th- that version of the film stars Valerie Hobson and John Mills. Uh, there's also a child actor named Gene Simmons who plays the young Estella and would go on an ac- to an accomplished acting career after this movie. What? Yeah, spelled differently, G-J-E-A-N. Oh, Gene Simmons. Not G-E-N-E. Um, yeah, but I'm wondering if he got a lot more inspiration from that movie than is suggested. <laughs> yeah, maybe. He said this was the most difficult song on the record to finish because of the complex musical structure. Makes sense. Sure, but at least you got the kids to sing about your sexual prowess. So you got that going for Because why you. not? <laughs> 
Weirdly, there were uh, there were several demo songs that they did dating all the way back to 1974 with the title Great Expectations. And some of the lyrics uh, from this song came from demo recordings uh, for this album originally, specifically a song called You've Got Nothing to Live For. Mm. That's Great Expectations. That's yeah. G-R-A-T-E Expectations by Edmund Wells. <laughs> <laughs> Flaming Youth? Flaming Youth. So just so you know, Kyle. Yes. I had a remarkably inappropriate comment to make after I read the title of this song. Oh, boy. But I'm not going to be that guy. Just use your imagination. <laughs> Did it involve a slur that I would be upset about? Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> so this was originally written by Ace Freely. See, Paul that's Stanley. why I didn't say it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Gene Simmons and Bob Ezrin with Stanley on lead vocals. It's an anthem for young rocker kids in the late 70s, and it also is just an all-around pretty good song, uh, I think. Yeah. Uh, some great guitar licks by Dick Wagner in here. Um, another song developed from the demo tapes that they presented, uh, originally from a song called Mad Dog. Mm. Released as a single, got to number 74 in the States, 73 in Canada, so it looks like most of North America was in agreement. Uh, the song was written pretty much by the whole band, producer by... Uh, and Bob Ezrin was sung by Paul Stanley. And wait a second, what is that I hear in the song? Is that a calliope? It might be. And a kiss song? Well, my God, it is. A calliope, for anyone that doesn't know, is a large woodwind instrument that is- <laughs> Large does not begin to describe played it, by please continue. Sending steam or compressed air through the tubes. Very popular in New Orleans and not very popular in hard rock songs. And Bob Ezrin had them doing some weird shit. Yeah. Uh, but this guy has an incredible resume. I'm going to pull a Kyle here and list all the people that he has worked Ooh, do with. Do it, yeah. Uh, Fish, Alice Cooper, Kiss, Pink Floyd, Balloonatic, Deep Purple, Lou Reed, The Kings, Hanoi Rocks, Taylor Swift, Peter Gabriel, Bonham, Kanan, Two Cellos, Kristen Chenoweth, Rod Stewart, Nine Inch Nails, The Jayhawks, Thirty Seconds to Mars, The Darkness, Jane's Addiction, Doctor John, Nils Lofgren, Berlin, Kansas, Julian Lennon, Joe Bonamassa, and Deftones. Whoa. But where I know him from, this is the co-producer for three Pink Floyd records. He oh. co-produced The Wall. He produced A Momentary Lapse of Reason and Division Bell, and also co-wrote several of the songs and at least two of those records. Wow. Uh, he was kind of an extra member of the band for a little while. And while this kiss is a little early in his career, the flashes of that production uh, brilliant show up now and then. But there are several duds on this record, and this is one of them. <laughs> I don't like this song. My Uniform is Leather. And my power is my age. I'm getting it together to break out of my cage. <laughs> yeah, that's a little weak sauce, man. All right. And it sounds like this. My parents think I'm crazy. I get a serious uh, cheap trick vibe when oh, I listen yeah. to this song. That's it, it. Absolutely reminds me of a cheap trick. Give me song. Those, those feels. Yeah, and, and Gene Simmons remembers the name of this song was based on the name of the band Kiss, a band Kiss played with in the early seventies around New York City. Mm -hmm. How true that is, I don't know. I don't. However, Flaming Youth is also a silent era film from nineteen twenty three that is a partially lost film. 
Uh, we only oh. have about a quarter of it right now. It was uh, at the Universal Fire? Uh, no, it was not, thankfully, the Universal <laughs> Fire. It was much longer before that. However, F. Scott Fitzgerald cited Flaming Youth, the film, as the only film that captured the sexual revolution of the jazz age. Ooh. So, you know when your grandparents, maybe, or great-grandparents were born in the 1920s and 30s? Yes. This film captured their sexual revolution. Actually, I guess technically it would have been your great-grandparents who were born in the 1900s or 1910s, because they would have been in their sexual prime in the 1920s or 30s. I don't want to talk about this anymore. So, you don't want to talk about your great-grandparents having just just absolutely fucking? No. Just totally, you know, weird? No. You know, let's listen to that jazz music and bone, baby. No, I don't want to hear about Show it. me some ankle, grandma. <laughs> ba, 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 da, ba, ba, da. You don't want to talk about that? Because that's what this whole movie's about. I don't want to talk F. about F. Scott Fitzgerald it. said it. He wrote the, the Great Gatsby. He can't be wrong. He can't be wrong. He can't That's be true. wrong. He wrote the Great Gatsby, which is a, an American classic, and therefore cannot be wrong. See, and I could li- I could see listening to this record at parties in the seventies, maybe even sure. now. But it's certainly not a record that I'm putting on for enjoyment sure. or just to okay. sit and listen to. You have to be in the right mood, or to have a 1920s jazz orgy <laughs> with your grandparents. No, let's continue. Hey, sweet pain, sweet pain. So what would a Kiss album be without a song about S&M? Right. A little light bondage to go with your rock and roll. Written by Gene Simmons with him on lead vocals, which is uh, <laughs> his favorite part. My leathers fit tight around me. Whip is always beside me. You want the same thing every day? I'll teach you love a different way. Whoa. Oh, there you go, Gene. It's sung by Gene, like you said, because of course it is. Very, very familiar sound to it. And it sounds like this. Yeah. solo it's pretty good the guitar solo in this is performed by dick wagner and it is great ace freely did not know yeah that ezrin had replaced his guitar <laughs> solo with wagner's until he heard the playback of the record right this is kind of what i was alluding to at the beginning when i said they know who they are and don't pretend to be something that they're not and i guess that's still accurate because while it isn't them playing the solo they have at least acknowledged that it isn't yeah, freely playing the solo. Personally, I think it's sort of a shit move to just arbitrarily decide to change a core member's part without their permission. Right. Uh, but I'm guessing that they had Gene or Paul's permission, and yeah. that's really all that matters. I was interested <laughs> to find out if there was the Ace Freely version of this somewhere out there, and I could not find it. So Ace I'm sure drunk somewhere. So I'm sure that is sitting on a shelf somewhere. Waiting to be "quote unquote" leaked, unmined when, when the when the band needs some cash infusion in a few years. Um, I'm fascinated to hear what the differences are. But all in all, I, I got to be honest with you: completely forgettable song. I, I this is it's a song. <laughs> totally. It's not bad. It's a song. <laughs> it's definitely a song. However, immediately followed up with what might be their most iconic song and most known. Shout it out loud. This is, in my opinion, 
the best song in the Kiss catalog. Fair enough. Perfect stadium rocker. Excellent for crowd participation and fireworks and whatever huge, you want to throw at it. Huge fan favorite. Both Just a great Stanley rock and, roll and song. Simmons on vocals. Great rock and roll song. Yeah. Released as a single, we'll get to number 31 in the States and number one, Canada. Canada! <laughs> uh, it is the fail-safe song of the band, being performed over 1,700 times since cool. it was released. Uh, the song is one, uh, one of the only ones that has Gene and Paul sharing vocal duties. Perfect to end a live show. Stanley has said that it is based on soul music and the use of call and response, and he modeled it after the four-top song Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. I can't help myself. Peter Chris said he ripped off the drum pattern from that song as well, but the beat is pretty simple, so it really could be anything. Here's peace right here. <laughs> <laughs> I would say in a Song Facts interview, Paul Stanley said, quote, you have the verse, well, the night's begun and you want some fun. Do you think you're going to find it? Think you're going to find it? That answer in the background is the four tops. Absolutely. The call and response is something that the four tops did in Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. Okay. Honestly, I think this song is a shot at people like me. Really? Even though I think this is a great song, I clearly have no love for Kiss's music. I've made that clear. And I think the gist of this song is that if you are listening to Kiss and you are a fan, you are going to meet your fair share of detractors. But who fucking cares? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you think it's the music you want to listen to? Then for God's sake, shout, shout it, it out, out loud, loud. Wave that Kiss Army banner as high as you could fucking wave it. And I'm all on board with that sentiment. I have no problem at all with people loving Kiss and their music. It's just not for me. But I think that's that song is directed at people like, who fucking cares about this guy? All right. Right. Good for go. All right. Just take a shot at me, man. Fair enough, man. That's great. Right? Beth? Beth. It immediately leads into this crazy, weird ballad hit. Written by Peter Chris, Stan Penridge, and Bob Ezrin, with Chris on lead vocals, mm -hmm. Dan Wagner on acoustic guitar, uh, Bob Ezrin playing some piano on here as well, yeah. and the, U the New York Philharmonic Orchestra playing beautiful backgrounds here. Written allegedly by the unlikeliest of people, the drummer Pete Chris. Yeah. Chris wrote this song, allegedly, with Stan Penridge when they were both <laughs> in the band Chelsea. Allegedly. Uh, the song had been laying around for years. When allegedly. When Simmons and Stanley encouraged... Chris to play it for Bob Ezrin. Allegedly. Right? Ezrin thought, because almost all of their songs are about sex, that Allegedly. it was it was a it was a perfect it was perfect for the record because it gave something different, a new voice, a new sound, a different energy. And Stanley and Simmons didn't want it on the album for those very reasons. 
But in the end, the song got to number seven on the U.S. charts, their highest position ever. Even now, it went gold, won the 1977 People's Choice Award for Favorite Song, and it is consistently voted as one of the best power ballads of all time. Yeah. Peter Chris sings the song, Bob Ezrin plays the piano, Dick Wagner plays the acoustic, there's an orchestra, no other members of KISS are involved in this at all. Pretty clear that they didn't want to be associated with it, but I guarantee they wanted to be associated with it after it hit big. They all wanted that Beth Cheddar. Yeah. This is what Beth sounds like. Beth, I hear you calling, but I can't come home right now. Me and the boys are playing And we just can't find the sound Just a few more hours And I'll be right home to you I think I hear them calling Oh Beth, what can I do? Beth, what can I do? What do you know about Stan Penridge? Uh, not much. He was actually a friend of Peter Chris's. Uh, oh, I did know that. Uh, and he, they were in the band Chelsea together, actually, which we mentioned earlier. They wrote parts of this song during that time. Uh, Stan was invited back to help polish this song up a little bit. And with its success, he was invited to write other songs with Peter Chris, including some of his future solo album songs. Uh, sadly, Stan passed away in May 2001 at only 50 years old. Yeah, he said that he took the lyrics from verbatim from arguments that another guy was having in the yeah. studio with his girlfriend at the time. Who yeah, was named like something with a wasn't B Beth. as well. Yeah, it, it wasn't was, Beth. Uh, now, I kept saying allegedly, and Kyle mm -hmm. jumped on that allegedly when yes, I was I talking about this song, because Gene Simmons said in his autobiography that <laughs> there was no way that Chris wrote this song at all, that Penridge wrote the whole thing. That Stanley agreed with Simmons saying, well, if you can write one hit song, you should be able to write two. <clears throat> to which Peter Chris replied with, Stanley is just jealous because he's the main vocalist and couldn't write the group's biggest successes or win the people's choice. That's his problem. And that was probably the beginning of the end of Chris's first stint <sighs> in Kiss. And obviously, because it is rock and roll, the biggest success of his career was responsible for the breakup of his first marriage, because of course it is. This song forever has a weird place in my brain. Really? Because my cousin Steve, many, many years ago when this came on either the radio or a CD or whatever, said something that has stuck in my brain. He said, quote, I'm sure Gene, Paul, and Ace love this song. It makes them all tons of money without doing any work and gives them two and a half minutes in the middle of a concert for a cocaine break. But they don't. <laughs> Neither one of them. Probably Freely. Freely so, did shit tons suppose, of drugs. You know, regardless of whether they do or not, it gives them a two and a half minute break to take a pee, so, to do cocaine, to if you have sex with a woman. I assume it takes Gene Simmons two and a, two and a half at minutes. least two and a half minutes. Um, so if you at watch. At his age, of course. There's but, yeah. There's a documentary called uh, Beyond the Lighted Stage, mm -hmm. which is the Rush documentary, and they talk extensively about touring with Kiss. And doing cocaine. And I'm not doing cocaine, because oh, okay. they interviewed Gene, because he's like, what are, they, what are the guys, because he was with chicks all the time. Yeah. And he's like, we'd walk by Rush's bedroom, and we're like, what are they doing? Are they, are they, they're, are they gay? No. Are they, are they into farm animals? No. They're all in their rooms reading. <laughs> And he's like, what the fuck is up with that? They're not doing anything. But they, they were getting 
stoned and hanging out in their room by themselves or like to collectively with their crew because they were all married. They had wives back in Toronto and they were just about the music. Well, so they would end up partying with Ace Freely. Okay. So Ace was like hammered all the time. Ace Freely would come to Rush's room because all they did was make him laugh the whole time. <laughs> There's this great bit about the the bag. Like Alex Lifeson created this character called the bag and it was like a laundry bag and he cut out like armholes near his knees and stuck his hands out through the bottom. And he, I talk like this, it's the bag. Here comes the bag all the time. And there's stone and he's just like, and it's awesome to hear these stories. But Gene's like, I don't know what the hell they were doing. They weren't doing, I don't know, they weren't like seeing girls or anything. So yeah, Paul and Gene were doing chicks, but not doing drugs backstage. I'm just bringing that as a side because, no, they weren't taking a two-and-a-half-minute break to go do cocaine. They're probably, like, fixing their makeup or something like that. I don't know. but Your favorite band is such a group of fucking nerds. Oh, and I've never been able to say that about another human being in my life. But so I love know, it. That's great that they are. Love you, buddy. It's great that they are, but God damn it, they are fucking nerds, man. And I love every second of it. It's my guy. I, I it's my like guy the, right there. I feel like that. Uh, oh man, what's the guy's name from Revenge of the Nerds who just yells "nerds"? Ogre. Ogre. <laughs> I feel like him right now. And then in the end, he finds out he's a nerd himself. Right? You're 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 the ogre to I'm, my nerds. Apparently, I'm the ogre to your nerds. That is so weird because I'm a, the I'm the sportsy guy. I know that is so weird. This is weird. I, I'm man. on. I have split brain. Anyway, do you love me? So much, Kyle. Oh, thank you. It's an- also, that's the name of the next song. <laughs> Another Stanley Penn song yep. sung by him as well. It is the last proper song on the record, as mm. the very last song is a relatively short, weird instrumental piece. Uh, written by uh, Paul Stanley, Kim Fowler, and Kim Bob Fowler. Ezrin. Yeah. That was Stanley on lead vocals, like you just said. It's a song about any person who dates a rock star. Uh, do you love them or are you just in it for the scene? And what we know about Kiss's reputation at this point in their career, you have to wonder if he really cares or not if she loves him at all. Like, who gives a shit? They yeah. were clearly a conquest band. So I hardly think that love really matters to them. Yeah. Admittedly, by Gene and Paul, they originally attempted to become rock musicians for the ladies. That was the sole purpose. Another reference to Rush in that Beyond the Lighted Stage documentary. Mm-hmm. They asked Alex and Getty, what was the reason you became musicians in the first place? And Alex deadpan looks at the camera and goes, chicks, <laughs> which is just so ridiculous. It's just, <laughs> it's laughable. Nerds. But musically, pretty predictable and ordinary. Sounds kind of out of tune for a lot of the song. And I kind of attribute that to lack of ideas. I mean, this is 76. There's a reason why it's the last song on the record. Fair enough. It's not very good. Well, second to last song on the record. Right. Bands tended to bury the worst songs at the back of the album. And if you really want to listen to it, it sounds like this. Do you love me?
Do ya? I mean, like, do ya? Do ya? Like I said, it's pretty forgettable. I mean, I've already forgotten about it, and I just heard it like three seconds ago. Right. However, this song does roll right into the final track on this album, which was kind of a hidden track. Rock and roll party! Rock and roll party. Uh, written by Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Written? Written, quote unquote. <laughs> Uh, they take the credit for it. Writ- written? It appears as a hidden track on the original vinyl pressing. Uh, yes. And it kind of rolls right from Do You Love Me into this song. I still want to do an episode about hidden tracks. Oh, that we would be great. We need to get that on the calendar. We should do that. I think it would be interesting to see what kind of gems we dig up. Right? Uh, this to me, though, sounds like you're listening to a concert through a 20-foot-long plastic pipe. This is not one of the gems that I would be referring to. No. 90 seconds of pure squelch and noise. Oh, yeah. Like, here's some right here. <laughs> so weird. But... If you think of it as not a hidden track, as just the end to the album, it's like, eh, okay, okay. kind of. It probably maybe. rides into the groove of the vinyl. I'll tell you in a couple of weeks when it gets here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and that's Destroyer. That's Destroyer. By Kiss. I felt as if we owed it to the masses to do a Kiss record. Okay. Their influence and output certainly warrants a complete look at their catalog, and they are absolutely deserving of the long career and accolades they've received, even if just for the live show. Well, the live shows are where it's at. And another thing, I think after 50 years and millions of records sold and thousands of shows performed, they have more than earned a place in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I couldn't say it better myself. And if you would like to get a hold of us... Yeah, tell us what you guys think about Kiss. Uh, you can do that any number of ways. How would Indeed, they do that? Uh, you can contact us uh, at Audio Judo on Twitter, at Audio underscore Judo on Instagram, or uh, Facebook.com forward slash Audio Judo. The best way to get a hold of us, however, is through email at info at AudioJudo.com. We respond to those pretty quickly, and we can start a little bit of a conversation if you guys want. You want to read that list? Yes. So, for the first time ever, our patron list, the Shout It Out, shout it out Loud tier, guess what? We have nobody there yet. Probably because it hasn't existed until today. Uh, the front row seats tier would like to thank Aaron P, Darlene W, and Michael A uh, for supporting us. At the backstage pass tier, would like to thank Christian S, David W, Michael S, and Scott K. Come on, people! I want that list to be so long that it takes the last forty-seven minutes of the podcast. Oh, that would be so it. great if it literally took us several <laughs> minutes to read this list. I gotta keep reading the list. I'm so- Let's take a break and we'll come back and read the rest of that list. How right? about that? We do, however, appreciate all of our patrons. If you are an existing patron and would like a different name read, like a nickname or something else, please email us and let us know. And I Jazzy will try to G. Get it on. Jazzy G. <laughs> Whatever, email us and let us know. We'll get it on the list. Captain Underpants. Captain Underpants. You know, whatever. We'll put it on there. If you haven't listened to our second spinoff podcast, Throughline, make sure oh, yeah. you do that. Uh, some some great episodes on the horizon for that. So go to throughline.audiojudo.com for episodes and information or anywhere that podcasts are podcast. Uh, we have episodes coming out about Badfinger, yeah, we do. Eagles, mm-hmm. and Peter Gabriel. So make sure you stay tuned for those. And until next time, bye-bye, everyone. Take care, everybody.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 